The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the hosts and creators of this program. This is the Pet Buzz. This is the Pet Buzz. Freshly collected with news, celebrity pet gossip, and the latest pet trends. Hosted by pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. And here's the Dynamic Pet Duo. Well, greeting lovers, another great episode of the Pet Buzz is here. You know, Dr. Fleck, sometimes I feel like I'm getting old. Hmm. You know, the body doesn't always work the same. More aches, more pains, more creaks. But then I thought about Spike. Remember, Spike? We were talking about how he earned the Guinness Book of World Records title for the world's oldest living dog on January 19th, one day after my birthday. But a few weeks later on February 2nd, Bobby from Portugal challenged Spike for the title. So with the received evidence, Spike lost the title to Bobby, who is a 30-year-old canine. In fact, Bobby, born May 11th, 1992, is not just the oldest living dog. He is the oldest living dog ever. Recorded. Yep. Recorded. That's very key. Well, Bobby is 30 years old, 266 days old as of February 1st. So this is an interesting story. Bobby has lived his entire life in a rural village of Conqueros in Liera, Portugal. He's a purebred Rafa Fierro dog, Alenteno, which is a breed that guards livestock. I butchered that, but I don't know any Portuguese. So the average life expectancy is about 12 to 14 years old. Bobby's mom lived until she was about 14. The Portuguese pooch has broken almost a century-old record. The previous oldest dog was a dog named Bluey. He lived from 1910 to 1939. He was an Australian cattle dog who lived to be 29 years and five days old. Well, according to his owner, Lionel, he was born as one of four male pups in an outbuilding where the Costa... uh, the Costa family stored wood. And due to the number of animals they already owned, the dog's owner, his father decided that they couldn't keep the dogs. It was going to cost them too much and too much food and there would be too many animals. So at that time, it was considered normal by a lot of older people who could not have any more animals. They would bury animals in a hole so they wouldn't survive. And the day after the puppies were born, his dad took them out and he buried them. But there was one problem. He forgot one of the puppies. So the puppy's mom, Jera, she kept going out to this outbuilding and Leon's brothers and sisters couldn't figure out why she kept going out there. So they decided to follow her one day. And what they found, there was a little puppy and he was almost the same color of the wood that he was next to this wood pile. So they kept it secret for about two or three weeks. Um, the, the theory was that once a dog's eyes open or a pet's eyes open, you couldn't bury them in a hole. So the family now had a new dog. I know that sounds so grim, but you know, these are cultural norms that they, people have around the world. And a lot of them now are, you know, outdated and, you know, people have different relationships with, with dogs. Well, anyway, Lionel thinks that one of the contributing factors to Bobby's old age is the calm, peaceful environment 
that he lives in, far away from cities. The dog has never been chained up or attached to a lease. He roams freely in the forest and on the farmland of the Costa family house. And he describes Bobby as very sociable. He loves all kinds of animals because he's with all kinds of animals. And, um, you know, he's less adventurous now because of his old age. I'm sure you could relate to that in terms of being a veterinarian. His eyesight is going and he's have difficulty walking and he collides into things when he, like Morrow, who's old, not as old as Bobby, of course. Uh, he rests a lot. On cold days, he likes to sit by the fire. Uh, but here's how I thought this was really interesting. Bobby eats only human food. If he had a choice between a can of dog food and human food, he would only eat human food and this is how they get away from the spices because a lot of portuguese food can be spicy mm -hmm. they soak it in water so the spice rises up to the top and then he eats mm -hmm. it uh he sees a vet on a regular basis he had some respiratory problems not such a long time ago but this is i thought was really interesting that leonel said about bobby he's the last of a long generation of animals in the costa family he's also a living reminder of times gone by and all the relatives he's lost over the years and you know, I want to say two things. We wish Bobby a very longer life than he has now. Uh, and I always say this, dogs serve as measuring lines in our lives, uh, just like they did for Ava. Remember the girl from the Super Bowl commercial? And perhaps this is why our nation loved that commercial so much, because we're starting to realize that they're measuring lines in our lives. Um, and if you can recall, we saw Ava's life and then we saw the dog, what he saw in terms of his memories. But I think it's time for me to stop reminiscing. But what do you think, Dr. Fleck? This can relate to our living with people. We talk about 30 years old for the pet, but most of our pets don't live 30 years. Most of our relatives and our friends, they're now living 80, 90 years of age. Mm -hmm. um, and our pets are now living longer too. Our relationship with our with people as they mature and as they go through different stages of their life, I'm beginning to see as a veterinarian, people are starting to see that same thing with their pets. And me as a veterinarian, as a medical person, I've been striving to find ways to help the pet have a better health life during that transition period each time it's accelerated because they don't live 80 years they'll live 12 15 maybe 20 years so people i think i'd like people to become more aware that as their their canine might be developing into eight nine ten years of age that's the next stage like with us going into 50 60 years of age how do we interact with our parents when we were younger, when they're 50 and 60, then we become parents and have our kids. They're the grandparents. How do we interact with them? That same thing can be it's related. It's true of, of the dog. But when I talked about measuring line, I think I realized a long time ago, Betty Buckley, you know, she's a Broadway actress. She had a dog named Bridget and she had been in Eight is Enough and a whole bunch of other sitcoms and stories and things like that. And Bridget was really old. Bridget was a Shih Tzu. She had three Shih Tzus. And Bridget... Uh, was very sick. And her staff would call and say, you know, maybe you should talk to Betty about putting the dog down. And I said, I can't do that. It has to be a choice of the pet owner. 
But one of the things I realized, I said, you have to realize a lot went into that relationship over that period of time. A lot of success that Betty had. First, she was starred um, in uh, Sunset Boulevard in London, and then it came to New York and it was a big hit. So there's a lot that went into that dog. So she sees a lot of her success in that relationship with the dog. So that's why I always say, depending on the relationship you have with your dog, it serves as a measuring line. You see like, like Lionel said, you see the family members who have come and gone. So you also have to take into consideration, like you said, there are different stages in this life where you have to start coming up with another plan, a middle-aged plan, an old-age plan, and a senior plan. And I'm saying we as veterinarians need to be aware of that because I keep trying to establish programs that help that pet during that stage that might make it have a higher quality of life living longer so that they can share that. And it isn't just a celebrity that feels. No, no, I'm saying. not saying it's just celebrity. Everybody it was just does. my first instant of recognizing that dogs serve as a measuring line, but we got to stop reminiscing. We yes. got to get on the, with the show. Uh, would you do the honors? Give us the rundown. Well, this week on the pet buzz, we're talking about dog challenging a shark an alligator left in a park lake in above all places, New York city. National Animal Justice Week with Emily Lewis, the managing attorney of the Animal Legal Defense Fund. Tom Brady adopting kittens and... Well, in a study conducted at Ohio State University, researchers found that neighborhoods with more dogs had lower rates of homicide, burglary, robbery, and to a lesser extent, aggravated assault compared to areas with fewer dogs, at least when residents also had a high level of trust in each other. And joining us today to discuss the study is Nicola Pinchek, lead author of the study and doctoral student in sociology at The Ohio State University. Nicola, welcome to the Pet Buzz today. Hi, Dr. Fuck and Charlotte, nice to be here. So Nicola, what do you mean when you say people walking their dogs put more eyes on the street? Yeah, so the original idea that we were working with is this old idea that in neighborhoods where residents are out on the street looking out for each other, kind of patrolling the space on a regular basis, they'll be more prepared to intervene in the, uh, you know, in a situation like crime or just to keep uh, criminals from offending altogether. This has been kind of hard to get at because a lot of the available measures that get at people walking around neighborhoods end up picking up on malls at the high end, places where there's just lots of traffic in general. And we try to get creative with this and figure that actually, if you think about a neighborhood with lots of dogs, a higher rate of dog ownership, there's going to be more walking in the local neighborhood, but not really, you know, going far distances. And we just had a sense for this, but then we started to turn to the literature it turned out to be totally correct. There's a lot of evidence that people with dogs walk more, but they don't necessarily go further, especially if you give older adults dogs that are much more active in their local neighborhood, much more likely to talk to their residents. There's evidence that these kind of social and you know activity benefits of dogs are only for dogs. There's even been experiments where they give one group a dog, one group a cat. You don't see the benefit for the cat folks. People with dogs are still more likely to be talking to their neighbors, still more likely to be going for those walks. And that's really what we needed to kind of get at this original idea that if people are going to be patrolling their space, there might be less crime. Well, we need to take a commercial break and we'll be back with Ohio, the Ohio State University. Niccolo Pinchak discussing how dogs and neighborhoods combined with residential trust can deter crimes. Also up next, Celebrity Pet Buzz and Flex Facts.
You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We love to communicate with you via social media. Use the Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and our buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. I'm Beth Adelman, Certified Feline Behaviorist. You're listening to The Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio. Thank you for joining us on The Pet Buzz. The show is hosted by the dynamic pet duo. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. The Ohio State University's Niccolo Pinchak is back with us in this segment. He's talking about his research involving how dogs in neighborhoods can help reduce crime. You had a question, Dr. Fleck. Yeah, you know, sociologists have long theorized that a combination of mutual trust and local surveillance among residents of a neighborhood can actually deter criminals. Can you explain how so? Yeah, so the original idea is that you do need both. This is from someone named Jane Jacobs. She's a pretty uh, seminal urban theorist. Her idea was that, first of all, you need trust in a neighborhood. This is the general idea that you will feel obligated to intervene if you see something going wrong for others. And you also feel like people are that way about you. So if you're walking around your neighborhood, you see something that's wrong. The trash isn't out. Something's a little bit wrong with the house. Trust is what kind of give you that sense of, I know this person, even at a distant level, I'm going to knock on the door. I'm going to give them that call. The eyes on the street component is really key because that's what puts you there. That's what gives Charlotte the sense of I'm here. I know what it's like every day. Trust is what empowers her to say, I'm going to do something about it. Uh, So generally, the idea is trust generates norms toward intervention. It helps people just feel like I'm going to take more responsibility in my everyday life for my own residential spaces. The dog component that eyes on the street is really about you're there and you can't do something about it. Interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking with Nicolo Pinchak, lead author of the study about how dogs in neighborhoods deter crime. So, um, Nicola, talk to us about this, how the study was conducted. Um, we mentioned a few other studies. What tools did you use? Sure. So our study is really drawing on data from three sources. First, we're getting crime data just from Columbus local police departments, their report. Uh, where crime occurs. We're kind of getting sophisticated crime rates for each neighborhood unit in Columbus. The neighborhood units come from the Census Bureau. We all kind of have these. We live in these designated units provided by the Census. From the Census, we also get information like the poverty rate, the residential population, um, you know, the racial composition, things like how dense the area is. Um, And then for trust, we measured from an ongoing study of Columbus residents where they were asked Generally, where do you go over the course of a week? Give us, you know, like 10 locations, kids' school, their workplace, grocery stores. And then they reported on how much they trust people at those locations. We got thousands of reports from these people, kind of average those up to each neighborhood unit to get at trust. To get at the dog density measure, that was a little bit more tricky. We looked at a variety of places. First, we started with, are there government data sources? There are, but they're pretty lousy. Um, HUD kind of has this survey where they're asking people if they need help evacuating an animal in case of an emergency, but not specifically about dogs. There's dog registration data here in Columbus, of course, but there's evidence that it's pretty lousy. A lot of people don't register their dogs or when a dog dies, they 
don't necessarily get removed from that registry. But we did have access to this ongoing marketing survey of Columbus residents, 43,000 some residents. And one of the questions on there is, do you have an animal and what kind of animal is it? And so that's what we use to kind of give us a sense of the average level of dogs in each neighborhood. A lot of work. I guess. Yeah. Nicole, in our county, there has been an increase of property crimes like the breaking into of cars. So what did your study reveal about property crimes? Sure. So I'll actually start with kind of generally what we looked at with respect to crime. So the theory originally, you know, about people being out and trusting each other and intervening, we really thought that that idea would play out in that exact same way for street crimes, things like robbery, which are much more likely to happen on a street rather than in a home. And all that worked out. The trust effect is strongest in neighborhoods with more dogs. The dog effect is strongest in neighborhoods with more trust. For property crime, though, we found evidence that dogs themselves are having an effect independent of trust. So even in a low trust neighborhood, you could expect a property crime deterrent benefit of adding dogs among the residents. And I think this makes sense to people, right? Like you don't necessarily need eyes on the street um, if if there's a dog in the house barking when someone even just right. knocks on the door. I mean, sure. I that that all the time. I'll tell you also, people have actually done studies where you talk to burglars and you know, people who have perpetrated property crimes and they'll say like, okay, here's a situation where would you burglar this house or this house? And one house will have a beware of dog sign. That alone is enough to make a, a motivated offender say, I'm just going to move on to the next house. So it's not even necessarily the barking sometimes, just all those signs that make them feel like this would make my life a lot harder. I'm just going to move on to a house that doesn't have a dog. Did you look at the economics of dog owners? I mean, was there more or less crime in certain neighborhoods? We didn't uh, like go probing for certain types of neighborhoods. Basically, what we did is we adjusted for inequalities in racial composition, socioeconomic composition, the size of each neighborhood, the density, so that we can assume that our relationships generally hold across the distribution. But we didn't specifically go and select and look at affluent neighborhoods only or only poor neighborhoods. And I think that could be interesting. Yeah. Um I guess my last question is the protective effect of dogs and trust were found even when a wide range of other factors revealed or related to crime that was taken into account. What other factors are these? So they're mainly socioeconomic composition. So kind of a combination of poverty rate, income, welfare receipt, racial composition. So the proportion of residents who are black or white or Hispanic. Um, the size of the neighborhood, how dense it is. In Columbus, we have a lot of suburbs that are really aren't dense at all. Lots of open space. What about sex? Or the neighborhood size. What about like sex, you said? Mean, meaning more men or more women living in these homes or did it make a uh, difference? We didn't adjust for that. There aren't a lot of uh, differences there. We did adjust for kind of the, the proportion of the population that's a young man. There's evidence that in neighborhoods where there are a lot of men under the age of 25, there'll be more crime. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Nicole, for visiting with us today. Before you leave us today, though, please give us your website where our listeners can learn more about this interesting study. Sure. So my website is pinchak.org, P-I-N-C-H-A-K.org. And if you go to the research tab, you can find a link to the study that gives you the whole thing, no paywall or anything like that. Great. Well, just to remind you, that was Nicola Pinchak, the lead author of Paws on the Ground, a study that revealed the presence of dogs in neighborhoods help reduce crime. You can find the study not only at his website, but on of the journal called Social Forces. We know that dogs contribute to physical and mental health. There's so many great studies about it. 
And this study just confirms it's another reason that dogs are really good for us. Absolutely. You've got mail. Did you hear that? We've got mail. This question is from Maggie in Tennessee. She writes that her six-year-old golden retriever has been playing with her new puppy and they've been running around a lot. She wonders if she can give her older pooch aspirin since he is limping. This question is for you, Dr. Fleck. So aspirin is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, meaning it's not cortisone. Aspirin has been shown lately in a lot of studies to be a little irritating for the GI tract, just like a lot of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, Tylenol, etc. So those usually aren't really recommended. If you go to the pet store, they do have specially coated aspirin, which seems to be safe. But your best bet is simply do this. Call the veterinary office. Tell them that your dog is having a, a little lameness problem. Not enough, you think, to necessarily come in, but what would they suggest as a, as a, as a possible medication to help relieve that lameness? And they'll be talking about a non-steroidal, and th they'll have their own suggestions, each one. For example, at my practice, I like Prevacox. Prevacox is a great non-steroidal, and we have to monitor it, though just like all the non-steroidals can take in over a long period of time, can produce some issues with the liver and the other internal organs. So just doing your own home remedy is not always the best thing to do for consideration for your pet. So speaking with the veterinary office and possibly having to have the veterinarian evaluated and make that decision for you is really important. Correct information, healthy information for their pet can be derived from just making that call to the veterinary office. Right. A simple call can save your dog's life, even if it's not a minor issue. That's Dr. Fleck's answer for Peppa's mailbag. You are listening to the Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We would love to communicate with you via social media. Use the Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio, where we focus on enhancing the bond between pets and their people. I'm pet Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian, Dr. Michael Fleck. Let's kick off this segment with the I Like You of the Week. That's the way it has to be, because that's the way I like it. It's genius. I like it. I love it so much. I like it. It's to die for. You know, I was inspired by our conversation with veterinary dentist, Dr. Jam Bellows last week. So I decided to hunt down some affordable dog chews that would benefit our canines oral care, but that are also approved by the Veterinary Oral Health Council. Firstly, any treats accepted by the VOHC are scientifically proven to help prevent buildup of plaque, tartar, or both in your four-footed friend's mouth. A product awarded the VOHC seal of acceptance. Now think the ADA seal on a box of uh, toothpaste. 
the product needs to show that plaque and tartar formation will be slowed down by 20% or greater as compared to a normal dry dog or cat food only. So milk bone, that's what I found. Milk bones, brushing shoes does this and more. Milk bone brushing shoes are made with grooves and bridges that act like bristles on a toothbrush, scraping away tartar and plaque down to your dog's gum line. The formula also includes real spearmint for extra fresh breath and of course kisses after a chew session. These treats, these daily dental dog chews, are made with all natural ingredients and are available in four sizes, mini, small, medium, and of course, large. But the best part, they are affordably priced relatively to other options. A bag of 25 is about $14 at Chewy.com, Walmart, and Target. You could probably find them in your local supermarket too. thought that throughout the final season of his NFL career, Tom Brady volunteered at the Tampa Bay Humane Society with his daughter Vivian. According to the Humane Society of Tampa Bay, Tom and his family are fantastic volunteers who gave the shelter's animals plenty of attention. While at the Humane Society, Brady socialized kittens and walked dogs with his kids. While volunteering, his daughter fell in love with two mixed Siamese kittens. So what did Tom do? He adopted them. So how did the Brady Bunch get involved with the Tampa Bay Humane Society. Ashley Bragg Ryan, the wife of Tom's former teammate, recently revealed that Brady and his kids joined her and her family in volunteering at the facility last year, and Vivian was his inspiration. On Instagram, she wrote, it wasn't about the publicity, fundraising, or recognition. It was about being a human being. It was about Tom taking the very thing his little girl loves the most and turning it into an opportunity to spend time together. It was about Tom reaching out to his friend asking how to get involved, helping his community by giving something far more meaningful than money, his time. It's great to hear meaningful stories or things about celebrities, but more importantly, I hope this little story inspires parents to take part in impactful activities in which they can participate with their children, such as helping animals in need. Charlotte, our next guest is here. Can you introduce the segment? Sure. Well, the Animal Legal Defense Fund's National Justice Week is an annual event dedicating to raising public awareness about crimes committed against animals. The Awareness Week campaign is just about over, but we will we still want to keep you abreast of important issues relating to animal cruelty. We read about it in the newspaper, we see it on the TV, and we hear about it with our neighbors. So I think that's why it's so important. So joining us today to talk about raising public awareness around crimes committed against animals is Emily Lewis, the managing attorney at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. Greetings, Emily. Welcome back to the Pet Buzz. We're really so happy to have you back with us to discuss this is an important topic. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, Emily, what should we learn during this National Justice Week for Animals? During the Animal Legal Defense Fund National Justice for Animals Week, we really want to raise public awareness about crimes committed against animals and how we can all work together to make stronger laws and hold offenders accountable. I think that's really important because time after time, we see these things happening around the country and, um, you know, people are getting away with animal abuse and it's unfortunate. Well, you know, as practicing veterinarian, I see every week marginal cases that could be considered to be 
animal abuse. But each year, the event features an animal whose experience with the justice system illustrates the law's power to help animals. Who is your spokes animal this year, and can you tell us the animal story? Sure. The spokes animal for National Justice for Animals Week this year is a dog named Leo. He was seized by an animal control officer in Connecticut for being found in emaciated and starving condition, unfortunately. Um, after he was seized, he was held in the municipal shelter for almost two years while the court case carried on. And uh, court, the courtroom animal advocate program, the first of its kind in the state of Connecticut, allowed for a legal volunteer to represent Leo's interests in the courtroom and facilitate his ability to be relinquished and move on to his new forever home where he's at now and very happy and healthy. That's great. Two years. I know, but two years, two years of like waiting to kind of, you know, and the shelter staff was probably just so distraught because he probably was a good dog and they just couldn't put him up for adoption. They, he just, life couldn't, and that's two years. I mean, two years is like what, 14 years of a dog's life? Yeah, it's a lot. You've got a scale. Well, if you've just joined us, we're speaking with Emily Lewis. Emily is the managing attorney at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. She is raising awareness of animal cruelty by talking with us today. Um, you know, additionally, the annual week of awareness highlights Americans' top animal defenders. That includes a list of prosecutors, judges, law enforcement officials, animal rescues, lawmakers, animal legal advocates, and a bunch of others who champion the cause of animal crime victims. Can you share a few names with us and tell us where these, I like to think of them as superheroes, are located? Yes, each year the Animal Legal Defense Fund does like to honor the top, what we call the top defenders, um, making um, great, great efforts on behalf of victim animals in this field of the criminal justice realm. And this year, just um, to name a couple for you that stand out, there's Humane Officer uh, Chris O'Donnell from Pennsylvania, who works to create an action network of shelters in multiple counties in her area to um, help response to animal hoarding cases. She also investigated over 100 cases of cruelty over the year and worked with prosecutors to hold those offenders accountable. We're also honoring as a top defender prosecutor out of New Jersey, Lori Linsky, who prosecuted a man for killing his girlfriend's dog in order to manipulate her in the relationship. And this case really highlights the connection between animal cruelty and interpersonal violence. And it's so important for prosecutors like Lori to take those cases seriously. So we wanted to acknowledge her work in that realm. It's amazing. I mean, you know, I remember years ago, Emily, we had um, the president of the National Sheriff's Association and he was talking about, you know, over the years, his career and dealing with um, domestic violence situations. And back in the day, you know, they a lot of these guys didn't read the signs. Um, you know, or she would kind of be looking at the officer and looking at the dog or cat and looking at the officer and they just didn't know what 
was going on and it's why so she wouldn't leave. why she wouldn't leave mm -hmm. time after time after numerous call to various sheriff's office around the country so it's really good that we that it's it's you know it's like trickled it's like i hate to say it's like trickle down economics but it's <laughs> like trickled down as we grow more aware and, and it's unfortunate we grow more aware by really getting more information and understanding more about these cases that people realize the connection now between domestic violence and animal cruelty. Absolutely. And it's just, it's dreadful. You had a question, Dr. Fleck. I'm sure our listeners are becoming a little anxious with this conversation. How can our listeners help and what actions can we take to raise awareness about animal crime victims? The listeners of the Pet Buzz can do a number of things to help victims of animal cruelty. The first thing they can do is educate themselves about the laws in their state, in their local jurisdictions, and then have a plan for if they are witnessing a witness to animal cruelty, who do they report that to, what details are important to report. A lot of that information you can find on the Animal Legal Defense Fund's website, where you can also sign up for action alerts to receive those about um, various actions you can take in order to help in a particular case or just in general to strengthen the laws. Well, we need to take a commercial break. We'll be back with Emily Lewis. Also in our next segment is Global Pet News and Tell Me Something Good. Does your pet have dry, flaky, and itchy skin? Do you find yourself visiting the veterinarian repeatedly because Fido or Fluffy has skin allergies or ear infections? EpiPet to the rescue. Developed by a veterinarian, EpiPet is a revolutionary, high-performance skin and ear care product line made with the finest natural ingredients. EpiPet, for you and your pet, means better pet health. For more information, epi-pet.com. EpiPet is another proud partner of the Pet Buzz. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck here at the Pet Buzz. We are urban, suburban, and, and country. Well, we're back with Emily Lewis, the managing attorney at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. She's been on our show before, and we're always happy to have the Animal Legal Defense Fund come on uh, and talk a variety of issues, including animal cruelty, because it's something we know the public needs to be aware of. One, it could be in their neighborhood, but it's also important to be able to know how to spot it and know who to call. I think it's also important because um, this also happened to me. If you think animal cruelty is, is happening, don't stop it being called once. So uh, I'm just going to say multi-people living in a house had a dog. They left the dog outside at night during the winter. I must have called the police station five times. Uh, and I kept calling. And finally, I ran into a police officer. And he had mentioned that... Um, I should call the specific detective because she was the one uh, in town who handled a lot of these cases. So I finally did reach her um, and they ended up between the time I finally got in touch with her because she was away on vacation. They were aware of it and uh, and they she had been assigned to that family that I reported. Um, it's difficult because you don't want to necessarily report on neighbors and other people, you know, that you're living by. But um, I think it's important if it wasn't for the fact that three or four people in my neighborhood two years ago called on this one particular situation, 
uh, and kept calling and calling and calling, the courts wouldn't have done anything. They wouldn't have sent the police there. I mean, it was just an ongoing thing. So I think you can't be discouraged if you call the first time. You have to stay on it. Right, Emily? Yes, I would agree with that. The animals don't have a voice to speak for themselves, so they are relying on you to speak up on their behalf. You know, I think we have to remind listeners that as much as we love animals and we're responsible for a whole animal, you know, our, our animals, we're part of a bigger community. And as Emily said, animals don't have a voice. So it's important um, that we take some action. Um, and it could also, if you're worried, I mean, you, you can call anonymously, but you need to do something. You can't let um, bad behavior and animal cruelty stand. So if this is a wake-up call for some people out there, if they know something, what do they say in New York? If you see something, that's where it started. If you see something, say something. Mm. And that mantra is on a poster outside my house. Mm. Okay, well, Emily, um, thank you so much for visiting with us today um, and talking about, an, I would say, an uncomfortable but necessary subject Absolutely. for animal it lovers. You know, we need to learn more uh, as well as take action, like Dr. Fleck and I said. So can you give us uh, the ALDF, the Animal Legal Defense Fund website? The Animal Legal Defense Fund's website is ALDF.org. Great. Well, folks, that was the that was Emily Lewis, the managing attorney at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. And she's discussing how we can help animals in need as well as animals who have suffered from crimes against them. We at the Pet Buzz encourage you to learn more and help animals in need. Great comment, Dr. Fleck. Let's talk about the good. Let me tell you something good. News of the day got you down? No worries. Pet trendologist Charlotte Reed is here with Tell Me Something Good. This is a necessity like air and oxygen. Tell me something well, the sight of a massive hammerhead shark was a rare treat for 32 travelers on a tour boat in the Bahamas last week. But then something strange happened. A dog dove from a nearby dock to confront the monstrous sea creature. Tourists aboard the four-hour excursion can be heard shouting and pleading with the dog to turn back. In a video circulating on social media, you could hear them saying, Oh my goodness, get out, get out, get out of the water, baby, and stop going after it. The dog ignored them and paddled after the 12-foot shark, which thrashed as the two animals circled each other in the transparent turquoise waters near a private island in the southern Bahamas. Then the shark swam away slowly, much to the delight and surprise of the crowd. While the tourist company reservation manager told the Associated Press last week on Friday that the black and tan dog always runs along the shore to greet the boat when it passes the island, but it's the first time the dog was seen diving in. When the shark swam away from the pier, the medium-sized dog scrambled back to the rocks, earning a huge applause from the tourists. While not our typical tell me something good, this is a story, a show of recklessness, bravery, and courage, but it's a story that will be told by 32 plus people from around the world that an unnamed dog protected what was his. Now that's something. It's a good story about the bravery of dogs. 
Let's get on with global pet news. And now, Pet Buzz News from around the globe. A four-foot alligator has been captured from a park lake in New York City. The reptile, which has been reportedly nicknamed Godzilla, was spotted on Sunday morning by a staffer in Brooklyn's Prospect Park. Just imagine an alligator swimming in a lake in a New York City park. So they contacted the park's authority, who then captured the gator in the park's lake. You know, alligators are native to the southeastern part of the United States in warm climates such as Florida and Louisiana. On Sunday, temperatures in New York City reached a high of 48 degrees Fahrenheit. New York City Parks, the authority in charge of the metropolis's green space, said the animal was in very poor condition, very lethargic and possibly cold shock when it was found. It's really not known how the alligator came to be in the lake. The authority has warned residents not to release animals into the city's parks, which is illegal. No one was harmed by the alligator, which is now being evaluated at the Bronx Zoo alongside the potential danger of letting animals go in the city parks non-indigenous wildlife can lead to the elimination of native species as well as unhealthy water quality each year urban park rangers across the city respond to about 500 reports involving animals while we all want to sport our individual style having an exotic or wild animal as a pet it's just not cool Frankly, it's illegal, and really, most people can never take care of them. Like, can you imagine? It might have been cute and kind of fun when the alligator was, like, small, but once it gets to be three and four feet, then you got to figure out what you're going to do with it. So just pass on the exotic uh, pet ownership. Up next, Flex Facts. Welcome to Just the Facts. Just the Facts. Fiction. Just the facts, ma'am. You want answers! I want the truth! So, Doc, what's the topic for today? Well, while we have talked about bringing stool samples to the vet, poop samples, we are going to talk about bringing urine samples to the vet. Analysis of urine samples, or urinalysis, is important for detecting various types of urinary tract diseases in the pet. So, once you've collected a urine sample, what do you do with it? The sample should be analyzed immediately after collection or be refrigerated and transported to the laboratory as soon as possible after collection. Urine left at room or higher temperature will degrade and test results will not be accurate. Also, urine samples should not be frozen. Who freezes urine? Some people do. Okay. Because freezing will change several important characteristics of the urine. The tests usually carried out on urine samples include evaluating the appearance chemistry and sediment okay so that brings me to my next question what does normal urine look like normal urine is yellow or amber in color and should be transparent or clear the presence of disease or infections may change the color or the clarity okay so this might be gross but what about the smell yeah for most pet species normal urine has a slight odor of ammonia the urine of some pets, such as cats, normally has a pungent odor. A bacterial infection of the urinary tract may produce a strong ammonia odor in the urine, and that's how you can detect a problem, maybe. Okay, so what does the test determine? Well, chemical analysis of the urine includes determining its specific gravity, pH, that's the degree of acidity or alkalinity, amounts of protein, glucose, from fragmented blood cells, 
and more. So changes in any of these may indicate disease, injury, or defects. Microscopic examination of the urine sediment, that's the solid part of the urine obtained by spinning the urine sample in a centrifuge, is part of the routine analysis. Large number of red blood cells in urine sediment usually indicates bleeding somewhere in the urinary tract, whereas large numbers of white blood cells usually indicate an infection. Other solid components of urine, such as casts or tubular structures formed in the kidneys, can also be there. Increased numbers of those casts may indicate kidney disease. Crystals may present in low numbers, and some types are not considered to be a problem. Some are. Bacteria may be present in small numbers in normal voided urine, but large numbers indicate an infection. Anything else? Whew. That's all the Flex Facts for the week. Well, we heard the bell, so now we know it's a wrap. But before we go, we want to give you a preview of next week's show. Next week, we're going to talk about learning how to read a pet food label, as well as talking about pet heart health. Dr. Fleck, would you be so kind as to thank our guest? To our special guests that we shared this week, Nicolo Pinchak and Emily Lewis. Great. And of course, we must always thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton and EpiPet, making better skin, coat and ear care products for healthier pets everywhere. You know, if you have a question, write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. We will cover it next week on our show. And if you've missed any portion of this show, visit our social media channels as well as your favorite streaming channels and listen to the link podcast on Monday morning. But most importantly, remember, we're here each week to help you Take better care of your pet. Peace out and pet love. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pet Buzz. The Pet Buzz is hosted by the dynamic pet duo, pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. www.thepetbuzz.com Learn more about us, the show, and our guests.